Hi, Canterbury Gardens. Uh, my name's Adam Shirley, and it's such a privilege to be able to open God's Word with you today. Uh, today, we're going to be looking at one of the deepest truths that we can find in all the Scripture, and that is the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, normally at our church at Cross and Crown, we'll preach through books of the Bible, uh, expository preaching, as it were, uh, looking at what God has to say, book by book, chapter by chapter, and verse by verse. But today we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to take a step back and look at what the whole Bible has to say about this one great truth. What is the connection between the Trinity and the gospel? So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to discover the deep truths of God, no less than God himself. Let me pray. God, our Father, we praise you for the gift of your Son, that in his death, you demonstrate your love for us, and by your Spirit, you seal your love for us. Amen. Well, friends, there was once a rail bridge that, that spanned across a large river. Every day as the train approached, that the controller would lower the bridge and allow the train to cross. The controller, well, he was a gentle elderly man who lived with his one and only son. He, he loved this boy more than anyone or anything else in the entire world. And every day, his son would accompany him to work. You see, this son, he loved his father. But one day, as the man was walking home with his son, he heard in the distance the sound of a train. He looked at his watch. No, the last train should have already passed. But he looked into the distance, and there it was. An unexpected train with hundreds of passengers on board. And worst of all, the bridge was still up. The man and his son, they ran as fast as they could back to the control room to lower that bridge in time. He told his son to wait by the lake, but... His son wanted to do nothing more than to help his dad. So what did the boy do? The boy climbed down the bridge to access the emergency lever to lower that bridge in time. But he stumbled and he fell into the gears of the drawbridge. Dad, save me, the young boy cried. But the man heard the cries of his son. And just as he was about to bolt to save his son from the gears of that drawbridge, he looked and that train was accelerating faster and faster and faster. And in that moment, the controller knew he faced a choice. If I pull the lever, I crush my son. But if I don't, I save my son, but I crash the train and hundreds of people die. Well, what do I do? Who do I save? Do I save my son or do I save the world? And then the father does the unthinkable. He pulls the lever. He lowers the bridge. He crushes his son. Friends, God is that controller who does the unthinkable. God pulled the lever. He lowered the bridge. He crushed his son, all to save us, passing by on that train. 
It's a moving story, isn't it? It's a powerful story. But friends, I'll tell you what. I hate that story. I hate that story. And let me tell you why. That the father, the father is not a helpless man cornered into an impossible situation. God the Son is not a hapless boy who is unwillingly and tragically crushed. And you and I, we are not mere innocent bystanders or passengers on a train with no moral responsibility. I hate that story because it undermines our salvation. Did you realize in that story, it actually says that the Father didn't love us. The Father didn't want to save us. He didn't save us because he wanted to. No, he saved us because he felt like he had to. But surely the most galling part of that story is that it pits the father against the son. It divides the Trinity. That The father crushes the son, but the son does not want to be crushed. Now, friends, today I want you to know that there is one God with one plan for one people. The father planned your salvation. The Son accomplished your salvation, and the Spirit seals your salvation. Isn't it strange that when we say the phrase, I love you, we can all mean something slightly different by it. For some people, the phrase, I love you, actually means I need you. That's not good. That's a dependent love. For, for other people, the phrase, I love you, means I love you but only if. So the father who says to his daughter, I love you, but only if you obey me. Or the wife who says to her husband, I love you, but only if you give me a certain lifestyle. Or the friend who says to his best mate, I love you, but only if you hang out with me enough. That, that might not be a dependent love, but it's a conditional love, isn't it? And so when that person says, I love you, they're actually wielding it as a threat to bend the other person to their will. And, and when we realize that that person lets us down, when they cannot fulfill our condition, as they always do, what do we do? We withdraw our love. We, we punish them by taking a step back from the relationship. Friends, that's not love. That's manipulation. And yet, isn't that how so many of us think about God's love for us? Uh, we think that God says, I love you, but only if you obey me. I love you, but only if you're good enough for me. And so when we fail him, as we inevitably do, what do we, what do we feel? We're afraid that God will withdraw from us. We're afraid that he'll take a step back from the relationship. We're afraid that he'll kick us out of the kingdom, that he'll strip us of our salvation. Thank God, though, that he doesn't love us like we love people. No, God doesn't love us, but only if. No, he loved us because he loved us. He planned our salvation, not based on our obedience, but he planned our salvation all the way from eternity past. In Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul tells us that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. 
In 1 Peter 1, we read that you and I, we've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And in Romans 8, we see this beautiful chain of salvation that starts all the way back before time itself. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Do you see, friends, God's love for you, God's plan for your salvation existed before time itself began. And that means that there is nothing you can do and there is nothing you have done that will ever change God's love for you. You see, before God created this world, he knew your name. And as God was creating this world, your name was on his heart. We read that word for no, that God foreknew. It doesn't mean that God looked through the tunnel of time to save all those people who would then choose him. No, in the Bible, to know someone means to love someone. You see, God foreknowing us means God for loving us. You and I, we might even say, we've been chosen according to the foreloving of God the Father. You see, before time itself began, God had set his heart on you in love. God does not say, I love you, but only if you obey me. Because he loved you all the way from eternity past. The Father planned your salvation before time itself began. Our sin doesn't come as a surprise to God. Our sin, our failure, it's not like that unexpected train that catches God off guard. No, God planned our salvation before you or I could do anything good or bad to deserve it or not. In Romans 9, uh, Paul explains how it is that God chose Jacob over Esau before either of them were even born. And this is what he says. For though Rebekah's sons had not been, been born yet or done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to election might stand, not from works, but from the one who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Friends, can you hear what Paul is saying? God the Father planned our salvation before you or I had been born, and before we'd had any chance to do anything good or bad, to deserve it or not. God has unconditionally chosen you in love. It's beautiful, isn't it? Sometimes we think that God is a bit like the sports captain uh, in a PE class. I wonder if some of you might have good memories or nightmares from that. Two captains stand at the front, and one by one, they choose their teammates. And of course, who do they choose first? They're the fittest, they're the tallest, the fastest, and the strongest. And who do they leave to the end? The smallest, the shortest, the slowest, and the weakest. And we think to ourselves, well, if God is anything like us, then... Why would he choose me? Why would he save me? Look at me. Look at my sin. Look at my shame. Look at my past, my baggage, my mistakes. Why would a God like him save a sinner like me? 
Why would a God like him love someone like me? Friends, God saved you not because of you, but all because of him. He saved you because he loved you. And he loved you because he loved you. God's love is truly unconditional. He planned your salvation from the beginning of time. He knew exactly what sort of person you would be with all your sins and all your shame. And still, he chose you in love. Nothing you can do could make him love you more. And nothing that you've done could make him close the door. Friends, I want you to hear what one author writes. This is what he writes, quote, Most Christians eventually ask why God saved them and not their unbelieving mother, brother, friend or neighbor. They toy with bad answers. Oh, God knew I would choose him. Or God thought I might be helpful for his work on earth. Or God thinks I'm special. But, any of these, but if any of these answers were true, our salvation would depend on us. That can't be. The only answer to the question of why God saved you is because he loved you. You see, friends, when the father says, I love you, he doesn't mean I love you, but only if you obey me. No, when he says, I love you, he really means I love you. Because he planned your salvation in love before time itself began. But not every plan comes to fruition, does it? Indeed, not every plan for love comes to fruition. The best of friendships can fall out over the smallest of faults. Marriages which start so well can suddenly end in divorce. And how many couples right now are frustrated by lockdown, not being able to be together, not being able to start their new lives together? You know, having a plan doesn't guarantee an outcome. The controller, he had a plan, didn't he? To save the train and to save his son, and yet that didn't work out. And the son had a plan to help his dad, and that didn't work out either. Now, having a plan doesn't guarantee an outcome. Unless, of course, the one who plans and the one who acts is God himself. You see, friend, God the Father plans our salvation and God the Son accomplishes our salvation. In John chapter 10, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not much of a shepherd. In fact, the truth is I'm not that much of an animal person. I quite like dogs, really love cats, but when it comes to a loving relationship, I don't know about you, I much prefer people. Well, look at what Jesus says about his love for his sheep. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. How? How does the Son accomplish our salvation? How does the Son fulfill the plan of the Father? He lays down his life for you. He dies the death that we deserved. Not because he has to, but all because he wants to. 
You see, friends, don't ever think that somehow Jesus was reluctant. It's not like the father sacrificed the son, but the son didn't want to be sacrificed. And it's not like the father wanted to save us, but the son wanted to abandon us. No, no, no. Look at what the son himself says in John 10, 17. This is why the father loves me. Because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down and I have the right to take it up. Friends, can you see Jesus was not reluctant to die for you. Jesus wasn't backed into a corner with no choice or no options. And he certainly wasn't a hapless young boy who hopelessly falls into the gears of a drawbridge. No, Jesus willingly chose to die for you because just like the father, the son has loved you from eternity past. A good friend once told me, Adam, I really struggle to accept grace because I just feel so guilty for what I did to Jesus. Now, on the one hand, we should feel convicted of our sin, but, but let's be very clear. Jesus wasn't an unwilling victim of your sin. You and the Father did not somehow conspire to drag Jesus kicking and screaming to the cross to die for you. No, God the Son willingly died for you. He chose the cross for you. The good shepherd laid down his life for his sheep. He laid down his life. For you. And if we come along and now reject grace out of guilt, we're actually dishonoring the gift that Jesus willingly and intentionally bought for us at the cost of his own blood. In many ways, Jesus is giving us a gift. We're looking at it and we're saying, No, thank you. It's not good enough. No, friends, the son willingly, the son joyfully accomplished the father's plan to save us from our sin. The father and the son share one plan and one love, all for one people. You see, Jesus didn't die to save just anyone. Jesus died to save you. Later in John 10, this is what Jesus says. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than them all. No one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Friends, did you catch that? Did you hear who it is? that Jesus died to save. Jesus died for the sheep that the Father has given him. In John 17, we see that same phrase over and over and over again, as Jesus prays, not just for anyone, but for those you, the Father, have given me. Do you see, everyone who the Father chooses, the Son saves. There is one God with one plan, for one people. Well, we need to get this into the marrow of our bones. That the Father and the Son have one plan to secure your salvation. You see, before he created this world, God the Father chose you. 
And as he hung on the cross, God the Son saved you. I used to think that Jesus didn't really die for me. I thought that his love was, in one sense, an on offer at the cross, but it was then all up to me to take him up on that offer. I thought that God, in one sense, extended his hand to anyone and everyone, but, but then it was on me to reach out and grasp his hand. But you see, if that's true, I can't say that Jesus willingly and intentionally died for me, can I? I can't actually say that Jesus accomplished my salvation from beginning to end. He may have enabled it, but he hadn't accomplished it. I think that's why, personally, I've always had a sense that the Father loves me, but I've always found it much harder to feel that Jesus loves me. It kind of felt like my salvation was a gift that, that Jesus bought for someone and then put under the Christmas tree for just anyone to open. But what I didn't realize was that my salvation is a gift that Jesus bought for me. It's a gift with my name written on it. Friends, I want you to know that there is a gift and it is the greatest gift in the whole wide world. Its value is beyond measure. In fact, it's so valuable, so precious that God the Son bought this gift at the cost of his own life. I want you to go to that Christmas tree. I want you to go actually to the cross. And under that tree, I want you to pick up that gift. Because when you do, you will see that on that gift, Jesus has written your name. For Shabu. For Ethan. For Jason. For Sarah. Your salvation is a gift that God the Father planned from eternity past. And it's a gift that God the Son bought through his own death on the cross. And that gift, I want you to know, it's not for just anyone. No, God the Father and God the Son planned and purchased that gift for you. I want you to think about the story that we opened with about the bridge controller and his son. Just imagine that you're one of the passengers on that train. Without you realizing it, that controller just saved your life. But let's face it, you've got no relationship with him, do you? No, the controller, he definitely loves his son, but he doesn't love you. If anything, after everything that just happened, he definitely doesn't love you, does he? The train passes over the bridge. It goes on its merry way. But you don't know that controller. And that controller doesn't love you. He may have saved you from death, but all for what? You see, what's to say that there isn't another bridge? How do we know that there isn't another tragedy that lies ahead? You see, in that story, there just is no assurance of salvation. So let me ask, what gives you and me assurance of our salvation? 
How can we be so sure that there isn't another bridge ahead? Well, what's to say that there isn't another tragedy that lies just in front of us? Well, friends, I want you to know that the Father who sent the Son to save us now sends the Spirit to seal us. That the Spirit, He seals our salvation. He unites us with the Son. He connects us with Jesus, and He makes us children of God. And He doesn't do that for just a short period of time. No, He does that forever. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. In Christ, you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. You see, friends, the Spirit seals us, and he seals us in Christ. He permanently unites us with the Son, and that connection is as strong as God himself. You see, when we're united with the Son, all that was forever His is now forever ours, and nothing can take that away. His blessings are now forever ours. His righteousness is now forever ours. And more than anything else, His Sonship is now forever ours. His relationship with God the Father is now forever ours. The Father's love for Him is now forever ours. The Spirit unites us with the Son, and in so doing, He makes us sons and daughters of God Himself. You and I can now say that God the Father is God our Father forever. I don't know what word you use to address your father. Most of you, I'm guessing, will probably just say dad. Uh, I, I say fa, which is just the Mandarin word for dad. But let me take a guess. There may be some of you out there, but my guess is that most of you don't refer to your father or call him father. It's a bit strange, isn't it? A bit stiff, a bit impersonal, not very intimate. You see, when we use that word dad, we're using an intimate word, a personal word. We're calling someone dad because they're not just anyone's father. No, they're our father. They're my father. In Galatians 4, Paul writes, Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You see, friends, in Aramaic, that word Abba, is the intimate and personal word for dad. The Spirit seals us with the Son, and now through our connection with the Son, you and I are sons and daughters of God. You and I can now call God Abba, Appa, Ba, Dad, because God the Father is now God our Father. We can now call him ours forevermore. I know that not everyone in church has a lot of faith in our fathers. Some dads haven't walked with us through life. In fact, some dads have walked away from us. Instead of accepting us and loving us, they've abandoned and left us. And even for some of the fathers who are physically present and there in our lives, it doesn't guarantee that they've been truly loving. 
Friends, if that's been your experience, I want you to know that the Spirit seals you with God the Father forever. The Spirit guarantees that God, your Father, will never walk away from you and He will never abandon you. He will always love you. Because the Father who chose you and who sent His Son to save you now sends His Spirit to seal you in His love. In Ephesians 1.14, we read that the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance. He's the guarantee, the eternal security of God's love and our salvation. You know, deep down, I think that so many of us are so afraid of living a loveless life, a life without love. We think that to be unmarried means to be unloved. We think that a dating relationship will provide that love. We think that marriage will permanently and eternally secure that love. None of that's true. I want you to know that single or married, if you are saved by the triune God, if you are saved by Father, Son and Spirit, it is impossible for you to live a loveless life. It's impossible for you to live a life without love. You see, the Spirit guarantees that you cannot live a loveless life. The Spirit secures you into a life of love. The Spirit seals you into the eternal selfless love between the Father and the Son. I want you to hear how Jesus prays to his Father for you. This is what he says. I am in them. And you, the Father, are in me, so that they may be made completely one, that the world may know you have sent me, and here it is, and have loved them as you have loved me. Did he catch that? That you, the Father, have loved them as you have loved me. The Spirit, he seals our salvation, so now the Father loves you and me just like he loves his son. Isn't that remarkable? That the love that exists within the Trinity is now yours to enjoy. That the Spirit, he doesn't just extend that love to you. No, he brings you, he includes you into that fellowship of love. The Spirit who binds the love of the Father and the Son now binds that love between the Father, the Son, and you. And it is a love that will never let you go. The Father who chose you in love sent his Son to save you in love. And he sent his Spirit to seal you in that love forever. You cannot live a loveless life. There was once a God who existed before time itself. He existed as Father, Son, and Spirit. And all three persons were perfectly happy and perfectly content. Every moment before time itself existed was pure joy and undiminished love. And yet, the love within this God was so great that this God decided to create a people 
with whom he might share that love. In fact, he would create a people whom he would love so much that he would love them as much as he loved his own son. God didn't need to, but he wanted to. And he wanted to demonstrate his love for these people in the most beautiful of ways. And so he thought to himself, what gift might demonstrate the extent and magnitude of my love for this people? I know. I'll give them my son. I'll send my son to die for them. And I will send them my own spirit to seal and secure them in my love from now until eternity. Then, then they'll know how much I love them. Then they'll know I love them as my own. What can I tell you? I love that story. I love that story. Let me pray. God, our Father, we praise you for the gift of your Son, that in his death you demonstrate your love for us, and by your Spirit you seal us in your love forever. Amen.